You're listening to Interzone Pod. My name is Gareth Jelly. I'm the editor of Interzone and Interzone Digital. Today on the show, I'm talking to Corey J. White. I'm such a I'm such a noob when it comes to Zencaster. That's <laughs> all right. Oh man, <laughs> it's it's eleven thirty. That, that's my only excuse. Um, <laughs> You were doing really well, by the way. So that was the, the, as as a, as a as a dry run. That's great. Okay, so th- thank uh, thank you very much for coming on the show, Corey J. White. Um, I thought we could kind of start off, uh, sort of recapping into zone pod listeners about some of your earlier stuff, sort of books they might have missed either because of the fact they were out a few years ago or because of the pandemic. And um, yeah, the Void Witch saga, the Void Witch kind of trilogy seems like a good place to start. Yeah, so the Void Witch saga is made up of uh, Killing Gravity, uh, Void Black Shadow and Static Ruin, uh, all three uh, novellas that came out through uh, Tor.com Publishing. Um, And so they follow uh, Mars Zai, who is a genetically engineered telepathic uh or telekinetic super soldier except the super soldier bit never really took because she escaped um the facility as a child and has been on the run ever since so the first book opens with her um kind of having her closest brush yet uh or her closest brush in years um with the forces that are trying to uh capture her and keep her under control um and she finds herself kind of at the mercy of strangers and uh, that's where we pick up her adventures so through that we have um like some found family um some uh kind of discovering truths about her real family uh, a lot of ultra violence and i hope a lot of heart as well um that was a, a really personal uh, trilogy in a lot of ways so um it might not might not seem that way to people reading it, um, but no, I put a lot of myself into that. Did you know when the because you I, I I was I was sort of looking around and I saw the there was a tour a, a, an announcement on the tour website for the third one. So you sort of you, I think you'd had the the first one was out, the second one was coming out or had just come out, and then the third one I think was sort of announced or you sort of signed. Did is that how they were written you kind of didn't know if there'd be a second or a third as you were writing the first one yeah I, I, it's it's a few years ago now so I'm, I'm not entirely sure how the timeline worked out but i believe we were in um well the edits had been done on the first book and it but it was still going to press when i got the contract with the second one and then um i believe um yeah the third would have Actually, no, that's right. The The second was signed before the announcement of the first because the, the announcement does mention two books, I believe. Okay. Uh, and then the third one, they um, kind of – we put the contract together for that a little while later. Um, so, yeah, I never knew um, from uh, book to book what they were going to let me get away with. So um, <laughs> the first one had a slightly different ending uh, in, like, my very first draft, and then I decided to change it because I wasn't sure if, um, like, I needed it to kind of feel like it was standalone um, just in case I didn't get to do a sequel. So each one right. each one is kind of um, – I've tried to make it a self-contained unit, but obviously you're meant to read all three and you're meant to read them all in the in the correct order. And 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 when you got when you got to the end of that third one, did you feel you said it was a very personal story? Did you feel like you'd 
sort of reached the end of that or or was there more was there more kind of that you maybe hadn't told that you wanted to tell I mean that's it's basically the story is told like the, one of the things about putting a character through a lot of uh, a lot of strife when you feel connected to them is that you kind of just want to give them a break at the same time um, right so like I told the story that I wanted to tell but there are more stories in that universe mm-hmm. that I'm you know that every now and again I think about going back to but um, there's always new ideas as well so we'll see but no, I got I got everything done that I wanted. And then, um, kind of after that, you, you there's there was this sort of big novel, uh, Repo Virtual. Could you kind of yeah, kind of walk walk us through how that one came about? Yeah, so um, I guess I'd been putting together notes towards that novel for a couple of years. Um, at the, at the point where I actually started to get serious about it. Um, and at the at that time, I'd been signed with um, Martha Millard, who um, was also William Gibson's uh, agent for a long time. Um, so we kind of went back and forth on some other stuff. I wrote a, a Void Witch spinoff that wasn't quite up to snuff. And then, and then I was like, you know, I've got ideas for a cyberpunk thing. And she was like, no, that's it. Like, let's do that. Um, and so we did... Uh, I wrote the first 10,000 words and we um, took that to my editor at tour.com and um, yeah, sold it to them there. Um, yeah, so. It, and then the pandemic happened. Yeah, so we sold it in, I believe it was early 2018. And then my agent retired. Um, and then okay. um, I had to finish writing the book and then go through the whole editorial process. And then. Um, you know, it was locked away sometime in 2019, and I just had to wait patiently for the um, publication date, which was uh, April 2020, <laughs> which was, um, yes, not an ideal time for a book to be released. Um, yeah, I think from from what people said at the time, that like they were reading old favorites um, and rereading for um, a bit of comfort, so people weren't necessarily on the lookout for brand new novels. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was definitely a strange time. Loads loads of things sort of got lost, but but it did, um, and, and it won a really big prize. Yeah, yeah, it won the Aurealis Award for best science fiction novel, tied with um, the Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay, which I don't I don't mind having a share at all because um, yeah, you know that book also won I think the Arthur C. Clarke Award or uh, I'm not sure if it's that one, but a big UK prize. So um, it won a big yeah, it won a big prize yeah yeah so um. You know, so it reviewed well and it won an award. So, you know, I did what I could. I wrote a, I wrote a book that I'm proud of. Um, but yeah, the rest of it is out of your hands, sadly. It's still out there. It's still in the world. How, like, how would you, what's the dreaded elevator kind of pitch? The, the, the sort of the, the summary for, for, for Repo Virtual. Okay. So uh, JD is a... Um, an online and real life repo man. Um, so working on uh, working in the real world to just you know as as a repo man does, taking cars and trucks that can't be um, paid off and returning them to their uh, to where they need to go, but also online with um, you know real money, uh, MMOs kind of uh, 
inspired by the likes of Eve. So being sent in to, to um, steal a vessel that hasn't been paid off properly um, because everything in that universe is uh, like considered tangible and non-fungible. And then um, through his, um, his uh, sibling, his step-sibling, he's kind of put onto this uh, heist that's meant to be, you know, a pretty uh, lucrative payday. Uh, and then after, after pulling off the heist, he realizes he's got, uh, got more than he bargained for and he discovers that it's actually uh, an AI that is quickly developing uh, sentience um, within the confines of his mobile phone. Um, and so it kind of becomes about um, <laughs> the personhood of AI and then like what, like the characters coming together around the AI um, and kind of how to deal with the, the tensions between the different groups that want it and their own desire to give it uh, a life. Um, yeah, give it a life, you know, the kind of life that it deserves as a real uh, intelligent uh, being of its own, like, you know, own volition. Yeah. And, and, and that sort of uh, Reaper virtual is sort of, you know, centered on this sort of AI and there's, there's AI in void, which now the, those two letters have a completely different weight, right? These, you sort of see, you say AI now in 2023 and it's sort of a different AI or at least it seems that way to me to the AI that we were talking about in say 2020 or 2018. How how has the how has your kind of feeling about it changed, and maybe the way you see the book as well? I mean, I think the the shorthand in sci-fi has always been for like sentient, um, you know, a, a sentient being who has or deserves personhood. Um, and what we have now in the real world isn't anything like that, despite what people um, want to tell themselves or want to want to tell the media for a bit of a stock market bump. Um, I just like I don't see a path from what we have now to general AI. Um, I just don't think that's. I think this path can give us like really. Um, maybe like interesting or surprising agents, but I don't think it's going to give us, you know, intelligences uh, like like we've been dreaming about for, you know, for centuries. Like what we have now seems to be pointing to the worst aspects of that repo virtual world, yeah? The, the sort of the walking down the street and having all of this advertising, you know, tailored or all of these sort of, yeah, the, the less the less pleasant, more commercial aspects of it seem to be where we're going, not the not the kind of revelatory. Yeah, exactly. I think that was um, like part of like one of the themes of the book is that, you know, an AI that is created within the um, structures of like, you know, corporate capital is not going to be um, treated with respect. And it's also, um, yeah, not going to be used for anything um, interesting or anything that's uh, going to add any value to our lives. It's only going to add value to the stockholders. It's um, yeah. And that's, that's definitely what I believe about our, this current, this current um, wave of AI is it's, it's all just hype. It's all just, it's the next um, crypto bubble. It's um, might have some interesting, uh, might be some interesting possibilities in there, but there's nothing, I don't believe that there's anything creative or any anything that sparks life in there. Um, it's all just more of Silicon Valley kind of extending its tendrils into our lives 
you know, desperately trying to capture more, yeah. more of our, ourselves and our data and our and our attention, so that it can basically just advertise things to us, which is such a just boring, uh, boring use of all this technology. It's so yeah for all their yeah. I mean, they they claim or they pretend that they're you know the great saviors of society or that they're you know brilliant geniuses and all they can ever come up with is new ways to sell us shit that we don't need i i remember because uh, i interviewed you back around the time of repo virtual and i think y you talked then about you know tech bros and the kind of the toxicity of some of that and you know not all of that is exactly you know I mean, it's worse now right like like if like if if someone had said to you in 2020 you know these two heads of this of these corporations are going to have a ufc style fight we're going to propose a ufc style fight that almost seems too strange to be true right yeah no we're definitely uh, in a weird time it's i think it's we're probably in a very transitional moment and so no one really knows what's happening no one knows what's coming <laughs> it's just seeing all the weirdness hit the wall um yeah yeah your your work has been described as sort of political and there and there are sort of you know definite sort of political sort of threads running through do do you see your do you see yourself writing from a very sort of clear sort of political standpoint or with a particular kind of outlook on the world or or is that is that sort of not something you're conscious of when you're actually telling the stories uh, no, I'd say I'm definitely conscious of it, but it does come through um, to differing degrees depending on what, what the story is that I'm trying to tell. Like in the Void Witch books, um, it's definitely there, um, but it's because that's um, about Mars and her own like story and it's told first person from her perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, it's There's less emphasis on those elements, but with Repo, it's a cyberpunk book, so it's um, very much about uh, corporate overreach and um, you know the kind of corporate dystopia um, so that has to become more uh, I guess a more apparent part of the tapestry so I definitely do go into it in more detail and kind of more depth and it'll probably um, a little bit more vitriol um, so no it's definitely it's something that's always been there in my writing because um, I'm a you know leftist anti-capitalist um, who yeah, just can't see the sense in how we've structured things and wants to um, either, you know, rail against that and then hopefully sometimes suggest other options. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, the um, just, just sort of going sideways or, or going back to sort of cyberpunk for a second, do, do you feel, do you feel like there is still a kind of place for cyberpunk as a sort of, you know, for telling that kind of story or has it has it started to run its course, do you think? Um, like I'm of two minds on it because I think, I still think cyberpunk is just as relevant, like possibly more relevant than ever. But I think a lot of people, um, you know, whether they're creators or, or like, you know, uh, fans, they do kind of get caught up on what I think of as the aesthetic, the aesthetics of cyberpunk rather than the... Um, like the storytelling possibilities or the the the, the themes that can be important. Um, so, yeah, like I think I'm planning another book at the moment, which would you know shorthand would be it's it's again kind of cyberpunk. Um, 
but a different take on it this time around. Because um, yeah, as long as as long as um, we are so in the thrall to uh, Silicon Valley and and similar, then um, I think it's it's relevant. But you do have to like keep it grounded in those real real world connections. If you're doing if you're writing cyberpunk and it's not about like what tech is doing to our society today um, or what it might do in the future, then um, you're just really missing a trick. If it's all um, you know street samurais and um, and yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, virtual, yeah, just virtual reality and, yeah, flashy neon yeah. and all the rest, then you're missing a trick for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but then the other side that I was, like, is, like, the other side of it is solar punk, which is slowly kind of coming into its own, it feels like. Um, we're slowly starting to get more uh, anthologies and kind of starting to get uh, the first solar punk novels because it took a while for those to start to hit the ground. Mm-hmm. And so I think one thing that I've kind of been doing in some of my stories is uh, the way that cyberpunk is leading to solarpunk and the way that that can kind of be reflected in our society, leading away from our digitally mediated lives and into something, you know, where we, you know, the where you might find the dirt under your fingernails. It's a kind of, um, yeah, yeah, a theme that I've been thinking about a lot lately and i am yeah, been working some stories um Working on some stories along those lines. Hmm, that's 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 interesting. And and in terms of sort of like sort of science fiction ideas and politics and sort of where where those sort of two meet, maybe that's a good place to talk about Hollywood Animals, your your interzone story out very soon. Yeah. Um. So that story it kind of came up because I I thought it was interesting how. Um, up until recently, there's recently been a, a push by VX, VFX artists in uh, Hollywood to uh, unionize. Like that, literally in the last week or so, they've started talking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but prior to that, it was just like VFX workers are basically uh, underpaid and overworked with crunch, just like in the games industry. And the reason why they're underpaid is because there are, uh, you know, a lot of. Uh, uh, companies vying for this limited number of jobs and a lot of it, um, you know, there's outsourcing as well um, as there always is in our globalized economy. Um, so then I kind of see that as that's the reason why we have so few practical effects, so few like interesting stunt, um, like stunt work in movies and TV shows because it's cheaper to just like slap some CGI on it. And I think mm-hmm. movies as a whole are lesser for it. Um if you watch something where they do actually uh, go to the uh, go to the trouble of throwing a real car into a wall, it's so much more impressive than the CGI <laughs> equivalent. Um, yeah, and so I was just thinking about like a future where the VFX artists have unionized, and whether it's because of the cost or whether it's because the studios want to just say "fuck you" to the CGI artists um, for for daring to to um, rise up and have their own say. Um, they've started to use practical effects again and including genetically engineering uh, creatures and critters instead of using CGI to create the, um, the like alien creatures. So the story is about a handler and um, kind of the way that he connects to these animals and um, uh, his own union drive uh, um, or his own like union striking uh, discussions because, um, you know, as always, the um, company is 
wanting to cut back on their workers' entitlements as they often do. Yeah, no, that's it's it's such a great such a great hook. I, I mean, it's one of these it's one of these stories where the actual like the idea is really great, but also the way the way you kind of like like that kind of you mentioned before, sort of the you know how what was it you said like like blood and guts and also heart. And I think there's, 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 I mean, that is sort of the thing running through all of your work. You have that balance between the very visceral and also the very, very sort of human. I think that's, that's something else that I really, really enjoyed about this one. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. That's, it's definitely important to me. I think, um, yeah, if you don't have uh, uh, something visceral and grounded um, to bring it home, then a lot of the ideas on their own can just fall flat. So I definitely try and um, yeah keep things grounded in in touch, I guess, whether that's um, yeah. in a in a violent capacity um, or you know or not. <laughs> yeah, well, it, yeah. Well, um, so so yes, yeah, so, uh, you can find you can find Hollywood Animals in Interzone two nine five at Interzone press, and I and it will be out very very soon. Um, moving from that, uh, I saw you share something on, uh, Blue Sky, the, the sort of latest social media platform, um, about mid-list authors. And it was a really interesting, a really interesting tweet because it's something that I've, I've kind of been thinking about a lot with different people. And you kind of shared this, uh, well, it's not, I keep saying tweet, it's a skeet, isn't it? <laughs> you, 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 you shared this skeet <laughs> about, um, how, I think I think the person mentioned Jack Higgins um kind of really big novel was his 25th and it mentioned kind of Rosamund Pilcher and it mentioned you know how like allowing the midlist to sort of to exist and to sort of to support the midlist authors so they can kind of you know hone their their skills to get to that kind of 25th novel and it's almost hard to believe at the moment because you kind of you do find you know books coming out authors coming out with books and then you know very very quickly either vanishing or just sort of struggling to kind of get that second or third or fourth novel out um yeah what what kind of thoughts do you have about that yeah i think um it's really really difficult because of course publishing is a business so they they, i guess you know they don't really have to support uh, authors who aren't selling for them like that so that's what they're there to do they're not there to make books they're there to make money and books are the way that they've chose to do that um, so of course there's still like a lot of people who are very passionate about the books that they're working on but ultimately it comes down to the bosses at the top and the bean counters so from yeah one point of view i understand why they work the way they they do but i also think that long term we're seeing like um we're going to see much less interesting and varied work and yeah we're going to see authors who uh, kind of deserve to have a better career than they've got and kind of who could be working you know writing full-time and putting out more work and you know work that might um that could, you know, from their point of view, it could sell really well, or from our point of view, it could just be some really amazing work that's going to like uh, yeah. add to the conversation in the genre, or like say something really important mm-hmm. to people who are underserved in in fiction, or like there are so many different reasons why uh, we need people to be able to actually consider writing a career that might be, um, you know might be viable for them and their lives um and instead what we get is you know 
publishers who will put a book out and they may or may not uh, support it with much marketing, mm-hmm. depending on you know buzz on Goodreads or the buzz on TikTok or whatever. And then it's just kind of up to that book and to find find an audience, and it's up to that author to try and um, yeah. push themselves out there. But uh, another um, a, a tweet I saw a little while ago was um, my what is it? My unpopular opinion is that I, I don't think uh, authors should have to be influencers. <laughs> <laughs> and like that's a hundred percent. I I don't want to um, spend all my time on social media platforms trying to build a brand. You know, I want to be reading and thinking and writing and um, mm-hmm. and yeah, like all this, all all the promotional stuff. The fact that it's just going to fall into social media as a platform, the authors more so than marketing departments. It's just um, I think it lessens. Uh, yeah, it lessens possibilities for everyone involved. And especially, like, for me, I see, um, like, the kind of Christmas trash that the publishers put up. So it's like, or Father's Day as well is another big one. So it's like all these uh, memoirs and biographies by sports people who um, definitely never wrote anything in that book and, um, you know, just all kinds of stuff that they churn out. And that's all taking focus away from people who, like, just love this kind of thing and want to do this and it's just yeah i I hate how money is such a large part of it um but yeah then on the flip side you know you do have indie publishers who are doing some great work um like uh interstellar flight press is one that i've had a little bit of involvement with writing some articles for them and just um Mm -hmm. keeping tabs on on what they're doing and yeah so there are small publishers um but of course they don't have the same reach as the big ones they've got the passion right (laughs) and they've got some great work um in their catalogs but yeah it's um uh talking about kind of yeah small press books and you mentioned writing for interstellar flight press yeah is that right yeah it's the one um yeah what uh, which sort of books what small press or not small press have you been reading and kind of enjoying recently Mm, okay um yeah i mean i started on simon seller's uh uh, code beast is his new one um it's kind of a a more uh more sci-fi more um well i guess more overtly sci-fi follow-up to um uh, his um, oh, uh, applied Ballardianism. That's the it's his first novel. Um, so yeah, this one um, that's just out through a small press. Um, but other than that, I've started getting into some Greg Egan, so a fellow Australian. Oh, um, okay. So yeah, I was um, halfway through Permutation City and um, just noticing how he wrote. Oh, that was published in 1994, so almost 30 years ago. And some of those mm-hmm. little insights into the future are uh, oddly prescient um, and in a bad way, <laughs> generally. <laughs> L- loads of early Interzone stories as well. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Lots and lots of the short fiction was in Interzone, yeah, yeah. I, I remember seeing his name a lot. Yeah, so, okay, so that, well, well, those are two good recommendations. Um, and you... You you have other other projects that you that you're kind of well I think one you said is on a hiatus you you were doing a a podcast um, buddies without organs yeah so that's uh, the that hiatus has become indefinite um, but there is a, a bit of a back catalogue for people to look at so yeah buddies without organs and uh, the first kind of uh, phase of that was about um, 
like the writings of Deleuze and Guattari. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, we kind of moved on to uh, some episodes about the uh, writings of Mark Fisher. Um, so, yeah, that was with uh, Sean from the Weird Signal podcast and uh, Matt Calhoun, uh, who wrote um, uh, Narcissus in Bloom is their latest one. And then they also um, edited the um, Mark Fisher's uh, posthumous uh, collection, uh, Post Capitalist Desires. And 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 you've been a big re- you've been a big Mark Fisher reader for a while. I, I remember I remember I think the first time, I think it was on the on Restricted Academy. I think that's where probably the first time I heard of that big sort of Mark Fisher book, uh, or, or or the book that had lots of his stuff in. So you, yeah, you've been reading Fisher for a while. What what is it that kind of drew you to Fisher, and 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 what did you kind of learn about him through the podcast, maybe that you hadn't realised before? Um. Well, I mean, the main thing I liked about, oh, I like about Fisher's writings um, is that, like, a lot of it is really approachable. I don't have any, uh, like, um, academic background in philosophy or theory. So um, a lot of the stuff is just like banging my head against a brick wall. And sometimes it's worth it. And sometimes it, I get to the end of an essay or a book and I took in absolutely nothing of it whereas most of Fisher's work is quite approachable and uh, one of the reasons for that is that he uses uh, pop culture references a lot so if you've seen the movie that he's talking about then the way he um, kind of threads that through the the um, you know politics or the philosophy uh, that he's talking about just makes it that much easier you know like as soon as you've got a, a reference point uh, that's easily understood, then you can kind of put that onto um, onto the work that he's writing. So yeah, uh, there's one that we covered on the podcast is um, about Avatar versus Terminator, um, you know, both okay. James Cameron properties and both with completely opposite views on uh, like, you know, I guess technology. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, so yeah, there's always um, yeah. <clears throat> interesting approaches that he takes in his writing and um and I think it's also like he—he he was obviously passionate about what he was writing. Uh, I think capitalist realism would be his most uh, well-known work, and in it, there's an entire section that's about uh, kind of the education, like um, tertiary education in the UK, because that's you know where he was working, and um, right. And you can just in reading it, you just can tell how infuriated he was by the the system and the way it was failing educators and students and like that he just wanted things to be better and that's like yeah you know i think as long as you're writing from a place where you're like what you want is things to be better and you're offering ideas and um and i want to say solutions but whoever has any solutions um if until we can see them enacted you can't call them solutions pa- pa- pathways to yeah, two pathways. solutions maybe. yeah so as long as you're um yeah, I think you've got to have the passion. You've got to, um, mm-hmm. yeah, you need to have, again, you've got to have it grounded in people. That's the main thing. Like, I think that's where my politics come from is that I will always take the side of people, especially people who are struggling over, like, fucking the budget, the economy, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. 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 Just paying, just getting, just getting through the week. Yeah. Uh, you also have a uh, a newsletter, which you do. Is it fortnightly or weekly? I think it's. 
Yeah, fortnightly. And then um, we do a, a bonus uh, once a month for subscribers who uh, decide to throw us a bit of cash each month. Yeah, and, and that's nothing here. Yeah, nothing here. So, And, and the website is, the, the URL is what? Buttondown.email slash nothing, I believe is the current one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I do that with uh, Dan Harvey, uh, Lydia Zwin, and uh, Marley Jane Ward. So, um, Marley's a fellow Aussie writer of sci fi, um, and Dan kind of um, writes, or he's, his focus is kind of on, uh, you know, tech. Uh, the tech industry and again like um, corporate overreach and malfeasance that's really where he um, likes to dig in and where he shines and then Lydia she's a futurist and also science fiction writer and um, but a lot of the time she's the one bringing in some some um, some books and music recommendations which is good because um, the newsletter can be a lot of uh, a lot of heavy stuff sometimes because um, yeah the the kind of I guess the point of the newsletter is gathering a whole bunch of really interesting stuff that people might not have seen um so some of that is geopolitics some of that is climate change some of that is um you know tech and uh, tech and design science and space um uh, labor all these different bits and pieces um we not might not cover every topic every issue but those are the the um main headlines we try and fill um so yeah i'm and, always and just, it comes from that Oh, sorry. No, sorry. Karen. Yeah, I'm always just trying to look for, um, like, I guess stuff that I didn't know or stuff that I find interesting, and assuming that our readers will always also um, find that interesting or enlightening in some way. So there's a newsletter, and then you mentioned uh, Marley Jane Ward, who uh, also has a story in Interstellar Digital, a uh, building, the the excellent building. So if you're if you haven't seen that one yet, do go to Interstellar Digital. And scroll down and find building because that's a that's a fantastic fantastic story. Yeah, is is that solar punk? Can we call that? I'm always a bit cautious with genres, but I, I think you you know the story, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do. I think um, that's definitely leaning towards it. I'd say that's like um, it's it's post apocalyptic, but in the in the hopeful sense, not in the um, dreary um, fight for survival kind of sense. Yeah. Um, so I think that can definitely be solar punk. Um, again, I, I, you know, I think the point of solar punk is hoping that we avoid the full apocalypse. Um, but yeah, in those kinds of stories, it is about about building community and um, you know, I guess in that story particularly it's about recycling <laughs> in one way um so yeah like community yeah. um and yeah like uh, getting your hands dirty doing things physically having um you know mm -hmm. that's definitely i see that as a, an important part of solar punk i think any any solar punk that's kind of um yeah lacking lacking the physicality and is kind of too caught up in um in uh, too in high abstractions is probably missing missing something important so yeah it's interesting you mentioned kind of avoiding the full apocalypse. I think that's a really, really interesting question because I, I feel like at the moment, maybe when I was when I when I was younger, there was a sort of idea in my mind of of a an apocalypse as a sort of you know as a thing, whereas it seems to be much more gradual and much more sort of drip drip drip. Yeah, I mean, it could still happen. <laughs> it's um no it's i keep on oscillating between um yeah worrying about 
well, I guess I'm worrying about the future, but um, to different degrees, um, constantly, all the time, uh, which is represented in the newsletter um, and also in my writing. But it's, uh, yeah, I, I guess I see exactly what you mean in that, um, you know, climate change is the main thing that we're all concerned about now. And that is, um, it's, yeah, it's kind of uh, fluctuating in the way that, you know, weather and climate always does. So it's hard to tell exactly uh, where things are going, how quickly they're going to get there. And obviously we've got a lot of people who uh, want to believe that things are going to be solved easily or simply with a bit of tech or um, with, you know, just by giving rich people more money that that's going to fix things somehow, you know, with all these greenwashing initiatives. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I want to believe the stories that they're telling us, um, but I find it difficult. So, yeah, I think it's more important to build, um, yeah, build connections locally and, um, you know, do what you can on your own, your own plot of land or your own community, your own group of friends, you know, try and build resilience and, you know, build networks of connection because um, those those connections are probably do more in times of trouble than, you know, the state and definitely more than the corporations. Mm-hmm. Um. Do you, do you have time for like one or two more questions? Yeah, go for it. You, um, you, you've talked about how w- w- when you were writing kind of repo virtual, you were kind of approaching burnout, whereas now you, you, you have reached a kind of better balance, I guess, sort of as a writer kind of facing that, how did you, how did you overcome that? And what did you, yeah, what do you do now to make sure it doesn't happen again? Um, well, yeah, it was the, the way that I approached it was through uh, therapy. I think I wouldn't have really realized what I was doing to myself if I wasn't seeing a, a psychologist at the time who uh, was able to like point it out to me and point out how hard I was being on myself and how, um, yeah, I guess unhealthy it was in a lot of different ways. Um, so yeah, without that, I definitely would have burned out. I think I, I stopped pretty, um, I was pretty close to it, I think, when I finally figured it out and pulled back. And so you're, you're, you're not so hard on yourself now, that's the important thing. Yeah, no, I, I mean, there's still the voice in the back of my head that tells me I need to be doing more, um, that I haven't done enough, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but no, it's easy to see that voice um, as just like one one voice that I can listen to or ignore, uh, depending on like you know mm-hmm. what's what's healthy, uh, so that I am maintaining a balance all the time. Yeah. Um, just uh, wrapping things up, you have uh, you have Hollywood Animals coming out uh, very soon. Uh, what else? Uh, and and obviously you have Repo Virtual already out. And the novellas already out. Uh, what else do people have to look forward to, with your name on it, in the coming kind of months? Or yeah, I've got a, a collaborative story that I wrote with Andrew Dana Hudson uh, coming out in Analog in the November December issue. Oh, congratulations! Yeah, thank you. Analog's a classic in the SF short fiction um, sphere. Yeah, and that's a really like that's well, uh, that's November December this year. Yes. Okay. That's fantastic. Yeah, so that story is um, it's um, I'd say I'd say it's a solar punk story, um, mm-hmm. but it's 
maybe maybe it's less on the punk side, but it's definitely about that the you know climate climate emergency um, approaches to it, um, following uh, seven generations of a kind of a very rich family who um, the who the early generations made their money in. Um, in fossil fuels and we pick up the story with the first generation who wants to do something about the climate and then how things uh-huh. go from there um yeah across seven generations so that's wow. it was really really interesting and fun to write and yeah solar punk family saga yeah yes yeah. that's, that's great is, is that a, is that a novelette or is that a no it's just a, a short story um so yeah, it's like the seven generations means that it was really tight. I think we it might only be five thousand words or something. Um, you yeah, know, it's quite concise for the story we were telling. Mm. Oh, that, that and 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 what's the title? Uh, family business. Family business. Okay. Um, oh, that's great. So so you've got uh, you've got Hollywood animals and family business, and yeah, that's uh, that's wonderful. Uh, thank you, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me and uh, putting up with my my foggy summer headed <laughs> questioning. <laughs> yep. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no, thank you. It's been a great chat. You've been listening to Interzone Pod. My name is Gareth Jelly. Today I was talking to Corey J. White. You can find out more about Interzone at interzone.press and you can read stories for free at interzone.digital. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time.